Hello everyone. Uh, can you please turn with me to Mark chapter 8, verse 22, uh, to chapter 9, verse 1. This is the last in our series on Mark's Gospel at the moment. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 22, to chapter 9, verse 1. Let me lead us in the word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you help us as we look at your word together. Uh, we pray that you help me right now as I uh, uh, do this recording. We pray that your Spirit will enable me to preach uh, properly. Uh, and we pray that uh, uh, all who are listening uh, and all who hear this recording will, um, uh, will be touched by your Spirit uh, and that you help us to see, uh, love, follow, and obey Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you apply for a job, uh, you want to know a little bit about who you're going to work for, right? You'll need to know what company is behind it, identity. You want to know what that company does, the mission. Uh, you want to know what the company expects of you if you're going to join. And you want to know what's the remuneration package they're offering so you can decide whether it's worth taking the job. Oh, well, it's a bit like that for those who are thinking of following Jesus. You need to ask four questions. Who is he? His identity. What did he come to do? His mission. What, do you ex what does he expect of me? And is it worth following him? Those are in fact the questions that our passage answers today. Uh, so if you're someone who is thinking about following Jesus, I'm glad you're watching with us today. But if like most of us, you're already a follower of Jesus, you really need to listen as well. Because you and I need to make sure that we're following Jesus on his terms and not just our own. Before we get to the point where Jesus talks about this though, Mark records a fascinating incident in a place called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is up in the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, the north of Israel. Uh, it's across the north part of the lake from Damanutha, where we saw the Pharisees demanding a sign from Jesus last week. Well, here in Bethsaida, in verse 22, uh, people bring a blind man to Jesus and beg him to touch him. Now, they're not demanding a sign to test Jesus like the Pharisees, they're just pleading for his help. Now, Jesus takes the blind man by the hand and leads him out of the village. He's compassionate, he wants to help the man, but he doesn't want to do it for show. Jesus spits on the man's eyes and lays his hands on him. And then he says in verse 23, Do you see anything? The man's vision is still blurred. He says in verse 24, I can see men, but they look like trees walking. Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again. And when he opens his eyes, his sight is restored. He sees everything clearly. And Jesus tells him to go straight home and not even enter the village. He really doesn't want the publicity at this point. Now, in the Old Testament, God is the only one who gives sight to the blind. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that will happen when God comes to save his people. So there are big hints here about the identity of Jesus, but, but there must be more to this miracle. For Jesus is quite capable of healing someone perfectly the first time. Why is he doing it this way? And why is Mark telling us about this right here? Well, we discover the answer in our next section. The next section is set in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, another 40 kilometers north, well away from the limelight of Galilee. And Jesus is there with his disciples, and he asks his disciples about 
Well, about the public opinion about who he is. Uh, he says in verse 27, Who do people say that I am? And it turns out there's all kinds of answers going around. Some, verse 28, say John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a great contemporary prophetic figure who had been killed by King Herod. Others, verse 28 continues, says Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament who called Israel back to God. Others said, verse, 20, uh, verse uh, uh, 28 again, one of the prophets. Makes sense because Jesus spoke the word of God. That's what prophets do. Uh, so, so unlike their religious leaders, the, the general public had a, quite a positive view of Jesus. Positive, but inadequate. And friends, there are all kinds of people today who have a positive, but inadequate view of Jesus. Many people in our country may think he is just one of God's many prophets. Others will place him as one of their many deities. Others will put him in a category of a great moral teacher. All these views are positive, but inadequate. It's like if someone asked me who you were, and I said, oh, he or she is a mammal. Well, it's true at one level, isn't it? But you're much more than that, aren't you? Calling Jesus a prophet or a teacher from God is, is true, but there's a lot more to it. It's not adequate. And so the, the crowd has this positive but inadequate view of Jesus. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them the question. He says in verse 29, But who do you say that I am? I wonder if there is someone here or someone watching this, who could easily answer the first question, but right now needs to wrestle with the second. Uh, you can tell what the different religions and different philosophies tell about Jesus. You might even be able to say what Christians think about Jesus. But today Jesus wants you to answer for yourself. Who do you say that I am? Well, when Jesus asked this question, Peter, one of his disciples, answers. Uh, you remember from last week, it was going to take a miracle for, even for, for the disciples to understand. But here this miracle happens. By, by the grace of God, through the revelation of the Father, Peter puts so many things together. All the things we've, we've read about so far in Mark's Gospel. The things that Jesus has been patiently teaching and showing them. And like that blind man in Bethsaida, uh, Peter's eyes are open. He says, he says in verse 29, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Right? The word Christ means the anointed one or the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is saying, uh, Peter is saying that, that Jesus is the Christ, the King, the one whom God had been promising. The descendant of David who would rule his people Israel and whose rule would be extended throughout the whole world. The one whose reign would last forever. Right? Jesus wasn't just a prophet, he was God's appointed King for the whole world. And you know what Jesus does when he realizes his disciples understand? Well, in verse 30, he strictly charges them to tell no one about it. More secrecy. Because, you see, while they can see, Jesus knows that they can't see properly. And they will jump to the wrong conclusion about what kind of king he is. Right, like that partially healed blind man, Jesus needs to do more for them. 
Remember how in the healing of the blind man there were, there were things that Jesus did rather than just simply saying, okay, be healed, which he could have done? And likewise, Jesus had to patiently teach and show his disciples many things as part of the opening of their eyes, each stage of the opening. He did before, and now he's starting the, the second part of the, the opening of their eyes. And he starts in verse 31 by telling them what he came to do. Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, looking back for us now, we can see this is actually fulfilling the Old Testament. Right, David was anointed as king. Then he had to suffer first under Saul before he could assume the kingship. Same thing would happen to the true king. Christ would suffer first and then enter his kingdom. Uh, furthermore, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah spoke of the figure called the servant of the Lord who would, who would not only restore and rule Israel, but would reign with justice over all the nations. But, but first he would suffer and die for the sins of many. He would bear their sins, take their guilt, endure their punishment for them. Then and only then would he rule the world. And so Jesus knows he's not going to be king by popular uprising. He doesn't want people to campaign for him to be king in that way. Instead, he would become king by his death and resurrection. That is how the true king would gather his people. But right now, Peter doesn't see this. Right? Like the blind man after the first round, his vision is still blurred. He knows who Jesus is, but he can't accept the fact that Jesus came to die. And so, in verse 32, he, he takes Jesus aside privately and, and starts to rebuke him. He's trying to persuade Jesus not to, not to follow that painful road. But Jesus, in verse 33, turns and sees his disciples. He knows that to be their king, he needs to first be their savior. They need someone to take away their sins, just like we do. Or they could never be part of God's kingdom. And in Peter's voice, he recognizes another voice. A voice that tempts him to avoid the cross. A voice to, that tells him to go for kingly glory without going through the pain. A voice that tries to draw him away from the path that his father set for him. And so Jesus rebukes Peter in the strongest possible terms. In verse 33, Get behind me. Satan. Sisters and brothers, sometimes it's not our enemies who lead us away from God, but our friends. Sometimes the temptation to disregard God's plans and to make our own comes not from people who hate us, but from people who love us. Sometimes the temptation to put ourselves first instead of putting God first comes from people who care for us and think they're doing us good. Don't be led astray by well-meaning friends. And be careful not to lead someone else astray from putting obedience to God first out of a genuine but misguided care for them. Peter means no harm to Jesus. He simply got the wrong way of thinking. Jesus says to him in verse 33, 
For you are setting your mind on the, not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And friends, sometimes people who lead us astray are even like Peter in that they love Jesus and confess he is king, and, but they have in mind the things of men. What they want for us, most of all, are the things that society thinks are important. Money and power and prestige and happiness and physical well-being. They marginalize the cross. They push it to the periphery. They only speak of triumph. And they downgrade the centrality of the cross of Christ and they ignore the call to costly obedience. And the gospel message of Christ who died for our sins and rose again is replaced with the gospel of Christ who came to make us happy now. And the call to repentance and the promise of forgiveness is replaced with the message of health and wealth and prosperity. Now, they know that Jesus is the Christ and they might speak with the best of intentions, but, but if they lead us away from the cross and they lead us astray. Jesus came to die for our sins in our place and rise again. That was his mission. He would not be distracted from it. And neither must we. Now, if that's what Jesus has done for us, the next question is, what does he want us to do? What does he expect of us? And Jesus answers that question as he speaks, not just to the disciples, but, but to the crowds in verse 34, because by now he has called the crowds to him. And he says this to them, as he says to us. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. What does this mean? Well, to deny yourself is to give up your place as the king of your own life. It's to say, Jesus is my Lord, not me. And for Peter, that would mean following Jesus' plan, which is following the Father's plan, rather than his plan. And the same applies to us. We are to deny ourselves and instead look to Jesus, to love him, to obey him, to follow him. We need to start by subjugating our ideas about Jesus and his mission to God's plan. God's plan was that Christ should suffer and die on the third day be raised. And that plan, now it's completed, is expressed in the message of the gospel. And that is the very heart of how we relate to God. We relate to him through Jesus. We trust in that death that makes us right with God, not our own merits. We love him and seek to obey him as our risen king because he loved us first. And if Jesus is king, then we are not. And so we recognize that we are no longer king of our own life. We don't make the rules anymore. We don't set the principles. We don't determine the priorities. We come under Jesus and are accountable to him in every area of our life. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You are no longer the boss. I am, Jesus says. And then Jesus says, take up your cross. The cross was a common method of execution at that time. Criminals were about to die. Carry their cross to where they'll be crucified. And so to take up your cross was get ready for being executed. Very soon, Jesus himself would be nailed to a cross and killed. And Peter tries to stop him. Jesus says, no, you take up your cross and you follow me. I'm going to die. You're going to come with me? 
Are you prepared to die for Jesus? Are you prepared to give up all for him? Because that's what it takes to be a follower of Christ. Right? This is no play-play religion or Sunday entertainment or cultural enhancement religion or just religion to make me feel better. No, no, no. This is, this is very, very serious. Jesus says, if you want to me, want to follow me, be willing to die. So what does Jesus want to do? He wants to rule my life. He wants me to be prepared to die for him. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I must do that on the assumption that it will cost me my life. That's a high price that Jesus demands, and so we come to the last question. Is it worth it? Is it worth following Jesus? Well, listen to what Jesus says in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. It's paradoxical. Like following Jesus to death actually is the way to life. Because Jesus will rise from the dead and enter into his glory. It's worth following Jesus to death because, because those who follow him will rise as well. Those who lose their life will save it. Would have been a hard word for the people at the time. What guarantee would they have that Jesus can deliver? But for us, actually it should be easier, right? Because Jesus has already risen from the dead. We know that he's for real. He's proven himself. So we can trust him to raise us as well. But if we refuse to follow him because we love our own lives, then we will end up losers because we will still die, maybe a few years later, but we'll still die. And then we face an eternity without him. And we go to judgment with sin still on our own shoulders. That is a, that is a foolish option to take. But if we follow Jesus and trust in his gospel, even if that means death today, we have eternal life. And at the resurrection, we will enjoy life as it was truly meant to be. It's God's people, God's place, under God's blessing and rule forever. If you want to save your life, you lose it. If you lose your life for Jesus in the gospel, you save it. Jim Elliot was a missionary to Ecuador. He was killed at the age of 28, back in 1956, by the tribe of people that he took the gospel to. His wife, Elizabeth, went, actually went back to that same tribe to share Christ's love with them. Uh, and many were converted. And many look back with thankfulness on Jim and, uh, and Elizabeth Elliot. Jim had a motto, and his motto was this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus says in verse 36 and 37, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Now, if money is your idol, what's the point of being the, the richest man or woman in the whole world if at the end of it, you die and go to hell forever? If career is your goal, then ask yourself, what would be the point of being the top banker, the best lawyer, or the most famous engineer, or, or whatever, if at the end of it, you die and go to hell forever? What's the point? 
And if it's your family that keep you from Jesus, what's the point of keeping everybody happy with you and at the end of it, you die and go to hell forever? Wouldn't it be better to follow Jesus to life and then try and persuade them to join you? Because who knows, you might even save them as well. What's keeping you from Jesus? Whatever it is, it's not worth it. Because one day Jesus will come again. And he says in verse 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, these, these gospel words about his death and resurrection, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Don't let anything or anyone stop you from coming to Jesus who died for you and rose again. Embrace him, believe him, follow him. On the assumption that this might cost you your life. And listen to this. If you are willing to die for Jesus, if you are willing to follow him on his terms, then consider yourself dead already. Your life is over. Of course, you're, you're still breathing, but your life is no longer yours. It belongs to him now. You live now to serve him, to please him, to bring him glory, to fulfill his plan. If you say you're a follower of Jesus, then consider yourself dead and ask Jesus what he wants you to do with the rest of your life. If you're willing to die for Jesus, then be willing to live for him. So who is Jesus? He is Christ the King. What is his mission? He came to die for us on the cross and to rise again and so bring in God's kingdom. What does he want me to do? He wants me to follow him on the assumption that I will die as a result. Is it worth it? Indeed it is, for Jesus offers us eternal life. And we can trust him with our lives because he died for us and was raised to life once again. Friends, if God has opened your eyes to see this clearly, then you are blessed indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to be our King. Thank you that he stuck to your plan and went to the cross to die for us, his people. Well, thank you that you raised him from the dead and he is our exalted king. We thank you for opening our eyes to him. And please help us by your spirit to recognize him as the risen king of our own lives. And please enable us to trust his death for us, for our salvation. Please enable us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. Father, we know that Jesus is willing to go to the cross for us. Please make us ready to give up our lives for him as well. And we know that it's worthwhile at the end. And please, Heavenly Father, give us the strength and the courage and the conviction to live each day for him who died for us. We ask this in his name. Amen.